All right, Revelation chapter 8, I will read verses 7, right? No, 6. Yeah. 6 through 13. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on, a th- on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of the heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So when we last met about a month ago, we looked at the first five verses of Revelation 8. So after the interlude that we see, in, which was in Revelation 7, that interlude where we see the, the seal of Israel and we saw the great multitude before the throne in heaven, we get now, you know, that uh, section we looked at last time, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8, we get back now to that seven sealed scroll that was being opened in chapter 6. The, if you remember, the scroll was given to the Lamb who was slain, uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. He was given the scroll, and then he begins to break the seals one by one, and it unleashes all of these judgments upon the earth, the four horsemen. Uh, you get the, the martyrs under the altar. Then you get, you know, essentially the sixth seal is like the day of the Lord coming upon people. All these things happening, great cosmic events. And then you get this interlude, and then the seventh seal is opened, and then you get this silence. A very kind of a anticlimactic in a, will, if, in a way, if you will. This silence after all, these, all of this noise that's going along you get this silence in heaven as the seventh seal is broken. There was silence for a very short period of time, a half an hour. And we, talk, we talked about how this is the silence before the storm. It's, it's the quiet that you get before things really start to get bad. Before the final judgment comes. And that final judgment is the return of Christ, which we will see later in the great white throne judgment. Keep your finger here in Revelation 8 and flip to the end in Revelation 20. Just to kind of get you, and I, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but this idea of the great white throne judgment, this is what will happen when Christ returns. In Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11, John sees another vision. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. This is Christ. And there, was a, and there was found no place for them. So the, he, here we get this white throne, and once the one who is seated upon it is revealed, everything starts to fall away. Everything starts to flee from the presence of Christ. 
Then John goes on in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So that is, really, that's the end, right? That's what's going to happen when Christ returns. And that's almost what you would expect once this seventh seal is broken, but you don't get that. You get silence, and then you get a change of scenery. So I tried to liken this to some movies. I couldn't think of movie titles, but there's a bunch of movies that are out there that tell a story up to a certain point, and then there's like this abrupt change, and then like the screen goes to black, and then you get another scene, and it's telling the same story now from a different perspective. So we are now switching scenes here as we come to Revelation chapter 8. Before that white throne judgment, we see now John sees another vision of these seven angels who are standing before God. And we tried to look at this and we thought, you know, some argue that these are the quote-unquote seven archangels or archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and I think there's, there's five others. I don't have the names in front of me. But these archangels that stand before the face of God. We don't really know who they are, but the seven archangels is as good an answer as any. And these seven angels now are given seven trumpets, which will play prominently in our passage tonight. And then the image shifts again as we see yet another angel coming from the heavenly altar. This this angel is tending this altar, and he gathers much incense along with the prayers of the saints. And then this angel then takes coals from this fire and then starts to fling them on the earth. This, we argued, is the final judgment because of the seventh seal, not the beginning of the trumpet judgments. And our primary reason for doing this is because we see a bunch of parallels between what we see here, this fire and stuff falling on the earth, and what you see at the end of the seventh trumpet, and what you see at the end of the seventh bowl or vial, if you've got the old King James. This, this idea of you know, fire and, and, and stuff coming down upon the earth in judgment. So that's our recap from last week, or last time, I should say. But now as we head into this passage, this brings us here now to, as we start to see the sounding of the trumpets. And what we're going to see here is this release of divine judgment upon every sphere of human life. And these, tr- uh, these trumpet judgments are much more devastating than the seal judgments. Last time we said that the seal judgments show the increasing uh, judgment that, bring, that comes about because of conquest and death and destruction that marks this current age we're living in, the last days. If you remember, we're talking about everything we see here is really just a picture of what happens between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. I've been calling it the church age. So the, the seals represent judgment being released on the last days. It's as if God here sort of removes his restraining hand and allows the depravity of mankind to sort of just go unabated, to just kind of let it go. Sort of like if you think about the way you know, you're teaching your kids to ride a bike, 
you're holding on to them, holding on to them so they won't fall, and then you just go, okay, off you go. And then the kid goes, you know, doing all these things. You know, that's what's happened. It's like, so that's wicked mankind. Wicked mankind has just been let go, and the seals kind of represent that. So the seals are sort of like, if you took a wide view, you know, wide angle lens and viewed this entire period, it gives you sort of like the 30,000 foot view of this period of time we've been talking about. The trumpets, though, start to narrow that focus a little bit. And they show God's direct judgment on earth, on the sins of mankind. Because all of these judgments, as we'll see when we look at them, come from heaven down to earth. Stars fall, mountains are falling, hail and fire are thrown upon the earth. All of this is God's judgment being directly cast from heaven down to earth. And they wreak devastating havoc on man's ability to earn a living and to survive and to do commerce and all kinds of things. So it is my belief that while the seals and the trumpets overlap, again, remember, I use the example of, you know, sports metaphor. You are watching the football game, and you see a play happen, and it's like it's such a great play, they show you the replay, right? And the replays are taken from different camera angles. You see the sideline camera, you see the overhead camera, you see the goal line camera, all these things. They're showing you the same thing from different perspectives. So while these two uh, cycles of judgment, the seals and the trumpets, overlap, I think the trumpets sort of narrow the focus a little bit closer to the end of the period we're looking at as the judgments become more severe, more severe, and more severe. But before we go on, one thing I do want to note are parallels here that we see in the trumpet judgments paralleling with the plagues that we see in Egypt. Okay, When God casts his judgment upon uh, the Egyptians during the Exodus, and when we see these trumpet judgments, you're going to see similar things, right? Uh, water being turned to blood, dark, you know, the sky darkening, um, you know, the uh, hailstones coming down and destroying livestock, destroying uh, the, you know, the, the fields and the forests and all that stuff. And what this tells us is that we need, in order to interpret Revelation properly, we need to look back to what the Bible is saying in previous cases of judgment. Not looking forward to some ambiguous future out there, you know, trying to read the newspaper and trying to deduce what's going on in prophecy by looking at your local daily newspaper or weekly newspaper and saying, oh, look what's happening in the Middle East. This must be trumpet number three or whatever. You know, that's not how to interpret Revelation. Revelation is interpreted by looking back and seeing how God casts judgment on the earth in the Old Testament. And that helps to interpret this what we see here in the book of Revelation. All of John's visions are taken from imagery we see already in the Bible. Second, just as the plagues in Egypt were judgments on Egypt for their mistreatment of God's covenant people, so too here the trumpets seem to affect only the unbelievers, only the sinners on the earth, only the wicked. And then one final thing, these judgments are as devastating. They're devastating, but they are limited. One-third of everything they touch. So in a sense, these are still like warning shots, right? You know, you're, you know, if you're trying to get someone to stop doing something, you may fire a warning shot up in the air. The next one, maybe you kind of, 
you know, put one off the bow a little bit, you know, you get a little closer. These, these are warning shots, but they are getting closer and dangerously closer to hitting their target. In other words, there's still time to repent if only people will recognize their offense to a holy God. And then when we get later on in the book of Revelation, we see the bold judgments or the vile judgments. This represents full and final judgment. So we see now the first trumpet in verses 6 and 7. So after the judgment associated with the seventh seal, John now refocuses on the seven angels and their seven trumpets. So we see here in verse 6, So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So the trumpet judgments are about to begin as the angels get ready to blow the trumpets. Now last time, you may have remember, we kind of considered the significance of the trumpet. But just a little bit of review on that. Trumpets are used to assemble the people for war. We see this in the Old Testament as trumpets are used to assemble Israel to battle against the Canaanites as they go to invade. They are used to signal the coming of the judgment of God. We see you know, here <laughs> in this passage, uh, in, you know, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, we see you know, the trumpets there. You know, that signals the coming of the day of the Lord. And also, finally, we see judgments are, or trumpets are used to call forth the dead from the four corners of the earth. So as Jesus comes, an archangel will blow a trumpet and the dead will be raised in Christ and they will all you know, come before um, God there. So these trumpets, you know, they have purposes in, uh, in the Old Testament in the Bible. Another uh, particular place where you see trumpets a lot is in the book of Joshua as, as uh, Israel is about to conquer Jericho. They march around the city you know, for seven days, and then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times, and on the last time, they blow the trumpets, and that's when the walls come tumbling down. So it's a sign of God's judgment coming. And that's what we see here. These judgments are signaling the coming of judgment from God. So the first angel blows his trumpet, and what happens? Well, we see that in verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So we see this hail and fire mingled with blood thrown to the earth. And as we said earlier, these trumpet, these trumpet judgments are to mirror the plagues of Egypt. And this hail and fire is reminiscent of the seventh plague that we see in Exodus chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So now the temptation, of course, is to see this parallel between the seventh plague and the first trumpet and say, okay, this is literal hail mixed with fire mingled with blood coming down from heaven on earth. It was literal in Exodus. Why not literal in Revelation? Let's just interpret it as we see it. 
But notice here, first, the plagues in Egypt, while supernatural, were literal judgments upon that single nation. But here in verse 7, it's not just happening to a nation, it's happening all around the world. So it seems more reasonable to see this trumpet as the results, if you will, of the judgments unleashed in the first four seals. Again, think of those first four seals. You had the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Again, not literal horsemen, but you had the spirit of conquest, then the spirit of war, then the spirit of famine and disease, and then the spirit of death. As these judgments are unleashed, it just creates destruction and havoc and all of these things. Second, never in recorded history so far have we seen a literal catastrophe depicted in, as we see here in the first trumpet where hail and st- you know, falls all over all the earth and destroys a third of everything. And third, as we've indicated in previous lessons, these are apocalyptic visions, right? This is an apocalypse. John is seeing things. He's having a vision and this is how he interprets that. This is how God is showing the judgment falling upon the earth. It's like that of the Exodus, of the plagues of the Exodus. Not literally like it, but it's going to have similar effects as that. John is only describing what he sees. And it does not necessarily correspond exactly to what we see literally happening in history. So what may appear to the skeptic or the natural man as a man-made or natural catastrophe, John in his vision sees a judgment unleashed by God upon the wickedness of man on the earth. And as a result of the first trumpet, we see the devastation of one-third of the earth and trees with all the grass. Now think of this for a second. Just kind of ponder this for a moment. The horror of one-third of the world's forests and farmlands being destroyed. As farmers, <laughs> we saw just a teeny tiny little bit of that just a couple of weeks ago with wind. Right? I don't know how high the winds got, but it was enough to damage all the crops in this area. Right? So that's just wind. Now think of what would happen if a third of all the farmlands were destroyed. A third of all the forests were destroyed. This would create an economic and ecological damage on a scale previously unheard of. So this, this, this judgment coming upon the result of, of man's wickedness being unleashed in the earth, God judges the earth by effectively crippling their economic development and their economic ability to do commerce, destroying farmlands, destroying forests, and all these things. Second trumpet, verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So now the second trumpet blows, and we see this giant burning mountain being thrown into the sea, okay? I I like that language there of being thrown. See, that indicates to me, again, direct judgment, right? You know, only someone can throw something, you know? It's not just falling, it's being cast down upon the seas. Now, again, it's like people wonder, is this a meteor? Is this a volcanic eruption? Some thought that this was sort of symbolic of Mount Vesuvius or... Was that, no, Pompeii, whatever, yeah, Mount Vesuvius in Pompeii, exploding and destroying all that area there. And again, I I caution, we must resist the urge to try to find a natural explanation for these judgments. 
Again, what John sees is a vision that is not to be understood in a literal fashion. We see something similar in Jeremiah 51. The prophet there utters a judgment on Babylon in verses 24 and 25 of Jeremiah chapter 51. And we see, And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. Now this is God's judgment on Babylon. And God judges the wickedness of Babylon for what they've done to the people of Israel, what they have done, the evil they have done in Zion, by taking that mountain which was being described, you know, Babylon was being described as a strong mountain, and he says, I'm going to make you a burnt mountain. I'm going to cast you down and make you a husk. I'm going to destroy your kingdom. That mountain, a mountain is a symbol of strength, and he's going to turn it into a smoldering peak. And far more important than the burning mountain are the effects of what happens when this hits, this judgment hits the earth. When the mountain is thrown to the earth, we're told a third of the sea became blood. Does this remind you of something that happened in the Old Testament (laughs) during the time of Moses, right? That was the first plague. The first plague against Egypt in Exodus chapter 7. So if you can keep your finger in Revelation, you don't have to turn there if you want, but So Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the rivers with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their ponds, pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants." And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river." So there you've got that plague, the first plague in Egypt. God sends to Egypt to turn the water of the Nile River into blood. And as a result, all the fish in the river die. The water becomes undrinkable. It's, it stinks. It's stagnant. It's, it's nasty. It's bleh, you know, whatever it is. And then similar here to Egypt, but with far more reaching effects, this great fiery mountain falls down and it destroys a third of the seas. They become ruined. A third of the marine life is killed. A third of the ships are destroyed. Again, as with the first trumpet, the second trumpet, these are limited in scope. Notice this. You'll see throughout all these four trumpets, the scope of the devastation is limited to one-third. Again, indicating partial 
judgment. It's stronger than the first set of judgments, and it, but it's, it's not yet complete, full judgment. The second trumpet is limited. In, instead of affecting the land, though, it affects the sea. So we're seeing, again, different spheres of creation. Land, now sea, being affected by God's judgment. Now I want to take a, just a moment here to say a few words about Babylon because we talked about this and you know, we looked at that prophecy in Jeremiah how, how God says he's going to take that mountain of Babylon and turn it into a smoldering peak. Babylon is symbolic, if you will, of the earthly, worldly forces that, are, that, that stand against God. Okay, All the way back to Genesis 11, what happens in Genesis 11? The people of the earth gather together to do what? Right? To erect a, a tower so they can ascend into heaven. Now that sounds like a pious thing. Let's build a tower. You know, you could say it in a nice way. Let's build a tower and let's go up to see God in heaven. Okay? That's not what they were doing. It's like, let's build a way to God so we can storm the gates of heaven because we are in rebellion against God. We want to... Go back to where, you know, if you remember in the garden, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and God pronounced judgment on them? What happened after that? They were, what happened, were they allowed back in the garden anymore? No, they were cast out. The garden is symbolic of where God is. That's His garden temple in Eden. They were cast out. And now man wants to get back in. But what happens? You know, what, what did God place at the entry to the, to the garden of Eden? A giant angel, right, with flaming swords going back and forth saying, you cannot come in unless you want to face the judgment of these swords that are here. So man has been trying to get back to heaven, and he can't. So he's, you know, he's like, let's build this tower to heaven. And God says, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. We're going, we're going to, I'm going to do something here. It's like, okay, let's let, let's, let's let them go for a little while. Okay, now let's confuse their languages. Right? So they confuse the languages and the people are no longer able to communicate and the little, you know, their, their assault of heaven gets stymied because they can go no further. But that Tower of Babel, again, that's in that same region that we see Babylon and all these things. It's this idea of rebellion against God. Babylon is the kingdom also that deported the Jewish people after destroying Jerusalem. When the Jewish people, the, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, the last remnant of God's people, when they finally apostatized, God handed them over to Babylon. And we'll see Babylon featured prominently near the end of, uh, of, of Revelation. Actually, we'll see it also, I believe, at the end of the trumpet judgments, if I remember correctly. Certainly at the end of the bowl judgments. But then you see it in, in Revelation chapter 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This great society that man has built up to stand in rebellion to God. It's representative of false religion and everything that stands in rebellion to God and His kingdom. So in the days of Moses, Egypt was that quote-unquote Babylon. They were that force, that, that kingdom that stood in opposition to God's people. And in in the days of John during the New Testament in the first century, that power would have been who? Rome, right. Rome would have been Babylon. In fact, Peter uh, signs off on one of his letters. He says, you know, I'm writing to you from Babylon. You know, in other words, he, it was believed that Peter was in Rome when he wrote that letter. He was writing uh, from Babylon. You know, that's symbolic of that which stands against God. 
So with these trumpet judgments, God is systematically destroying the ability of the world of man to operate and do commerce. God is tearing it apart. He is preventing them from gaining strength, just like he did at Babel, confusing the languages so they could no longer build this tower. He is destroying their ability to do commerce, to, to live in, 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 you know, with any kind of prosperity or anything like that. So whether it's through natural or supernatural means, one-third of the seas, one-third of the marine life, one-third of the merchant marine business is all destroyed. And again, that would be devastating to the commerce and economics of the world. God is bringing judgment upon the wickedness of men. We see this in Isaiah chapter 2 in verses 12 through 17, where we see, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish. Upon all the beautiful slopes, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. That's the day of the Lord judgment coming upon the wickedness of mankind, and we see that happening through the progression of these trumpet judgments. As the trumpets blow, judgment is released on the earth. Third, trumpet in verses 10 and 11 then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water the name of the star is wormwood a third of the waters became wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter so at the sound of the third trumpet of the third trumpet a great star falls from heaven Now, again, note, like the other two trumpets, these are, again, direct judgments from God. Here, John sees the star fall from where? From heaven, where God is. Not just the sky. From heaven. If it was the skies, I think it would have just said the heavens. It would have been plural. Now, again, this notion of a star falling from heaven brings to mind imagery that we see in Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, you can turn there if you'd like. Again, keep your finger in uh, Revelation 8. But Isaiah uh, chapter 14, again, this is a a judgment against Babylon, oddly enough, or not. Now, if you have headings in your Bible, you might see like I have in mine, it says the fall of Lucifer. Okay? That's what many take this to be. Um, But it's also... It's also part, in, it's, it's, it's included in a section here, the fall of the king of Babylon. Okay, so Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. 
yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Now you might have a footnote in verse 12. If you have a New King James, it says Lucifer there. Uh, that footnote also says it literally means day star. Day star. So here you have a taunt or a proverb or a parable, the, the Hebrew word is mashal, against the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Now many scholars and commentators see in this passage also an image of the fall of Satan. Now it's not a surprise that what we see happening in the world, what we see as kingdoms rising and falling and all that stuff, are behind those kingdoms are angelic or demonic forces. It's the spiritual warfare that we're all engaged in. We'll, you see this in Daniel as you see Michael is like the angel of the people of Israel. You see other angels who are, the, he says that angel was uh, prohibited from coming to Daniel by the king, you know, the prince of Persia. Now, an angel is not going to be stopped by a human being. That's the angel who is sort of like kind of overseeing the affairs in Persia. So behind human kingdoms, behind the rise and fall of kingdoms is an angelic and demonic forces kind of running the show, spiritually speaking, if you will. So while this is a taunt against or a proverb against Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it's, that's, it, you also see it as a taunt against Lucifer. He's talking about, you know, this is you know, predictive of the fall of Lucifer, how he's cast out of heaven. And he was cast out of heaven because of his pride, right? I will ascend. I will do this. I, I, I. You know, whenever, whenever you start saying I, I, I a lot, you're probably thinking a little bit too much of yourself and not enough of others. That's pride. Again, note the language there. Fallen from heaven, star of the morning, son of the dawn. That, so, you know, while it could be speaking of the king of Babylon, it's almost certainly speaking also of Satan. So both can be true. Now, I bring that up because, you know, here he is, the day star, the morning star, and he's falling on the earth. He's cast down, you know, and we'll see this later in Revelation when there's this great battle in heaven and Michael's defeats the dragon and a third of the angels, it says a third of the stars were cast down from heaven to earth. Again, I don't think this is a literal star. This is not some giant meteor falling. This is, this is a, a, a figurative thing here. This is a symbolic thing. This great star falls from heaven and it says it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. So in other words, the fresh water disp- supply is disrupted. I don't see how a single star can do that to all of the fresh water in the world, one-third of it, unless it's all like, you know, one-third of it accumulated in one, one spot or something like that, right? So again, as with the previous two, uh, we shouldn't, I don't think we should interpret this as a literal star or meteor uh, that somehow finds its way to destroying one-third of all the fresh water sources. In fact, the star has a name. It's, a, has, it's named Wormwood, <laughs> Not Worm Tongue from Lord of the Rings, but Wormwood. <laughs> I, I knew Mark Bailey would laugh. So I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 9 talks about Wormwood. I know we're turning into the you know, other places in the Bible, but again, remember I said Revelation is best interpreted when you f- see these symbols from the Old Testament. So in, Re- in Jeremiah chapter 9... Verses 12 through 16. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 12. Yeah, chapter 9, verse 12. 
So the prophet says, Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I have set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. Verse 14. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts, and after the bales which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom Neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. So this wormwood, is a, it's a bitter herb that is used metaphorically to depict bitterness. And the context here in Jeremiah 9 is that the people of Israel have tested God's patience. Again, Jeremiah prophesies at the end of the kingdom of Judah. So Judah is about to be cast into into exile in, in Babylon, and he's there during those days. So he's, he's there during the fall of his own home. His own kingdom is falling. And he's to prophesy to the people, and he's told many times, like, you're going to prophesy your heart out, but they're not going to listen to you. Which, that would be very disappointing to me. If I was <laughs> told, it's like, go preach, 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 preach. But guess what? No one's going to listen to you. Like, Ugh, well, that's, that seems pointless. But he goes there anyway because this word of God comes to them and it hardens their hearts, if you will. So Israel has tested God's patience for years, for centuries. Finally now, judgment is coming upon them. So as a result, he will now hand them over to Babylon for judgment. And he gives them bitterness. He gives them wormwood and poisoned water to drink. So it's, it's, it's this, this wormwood is sort of just bitterness. It's, it's symbolic of bitterness. You don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah 23.15, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. That was another thing that was happening during the, the time near the end of the kingdom of Judah was that they had a many false prophets who were just saying, peace, peace, nothing's going to happen. God loves you because you're Jewish. And we're like, Jeremiah's like, no, that's not what's going to happen. So these false prophets get judged also with bitterness, with wormwood, and they're, they're made to drink the water of gall. It is, an, it is a denunciation of false prophets, and God says he will feed them with this wormwood and make them drink bitter, poisonous water. So this idea of wormwood seems to be associated with poisonous, nasty you know, water to drink from the Old Testament. And I think the same can be said here in this third seal, or sorry, third trumpet, in verses 10 and 11 of Revelation 8. The judgment here is bitterness. The unbelieving world receives for their continued rebellion against God. As they continually rebel against God, God is going to feed them with bitterness, we see, we see that all happening all the time now, right? I mean, just look, if you've ever gone on social media for five seconds, <laughs> you will see the bitterness in this world as people just like, you know, that offends me. That, you know, I'm triggered by that and all this stuff. And people arguing back and forth. And there's no grace given to anybody. Bitterness, bitterness. 
So their efforts, the efforts of the people in rebellion will be cast down as a result and, and there will be bitterness and poison water to drink. Uh, Richard Phillips, who writes a commentary in Revelation, says, Wormwood is a biblical catchphrase for the consequences of sin in ruining all of life. I'll repeat that. Wormwood is a biblical catchphrase for the consequences of sin ruining all of life. Okay, now, finally, the fourth trumpet, verse 12. So the fun, quote-unquote, the fun, can, the hits just keep on coming in the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet gets ready to blow, verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now, maybe if you're alike and you didn't want to raise your hand and ask a question, if you were perhaps doubting up to this point whether or not these effects of these trumpet judgments should be taken literally, I think this one should kind of convince you that it's not meant to be taken literally. Because if you think about it for just a second, what would happen if the sun either shone at one-third less intensity or shone for one-third less hours in the day? If we had one-third less daylight, one-third or the sun was reduced in its intensity by one-third, what do you think the effects on the earth would be? Yeah, it'd, be, it'd get cold really quick. It'd get cold really... Now, maybe we could be talking about a solar eclipse or perhaps some supernatural phenomena. Uh, I think one can posit any kind of and all sorts of natural and supernatural explanations to, to explain this away. But if you remember when we talk about darkness, what does darkness symbolize in the Bible? Darkness symbolizes judgment, divine judgment. Okay, I'm, Now I'm going to rattle off a bunch of verses here. You don't need to turn them. If you want to note the references, you can. Uh, Isaiah 13.10 For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Ezekiel 32, verse 7. When I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. I've got three now from the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. Joel chapter 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Joel 3.15 The sun and moon will grow dark and the suns will diminish their brightness. Are you catching a theme here? <laughs> All right, darkness, darkness. You know, you know, refuse to give its light. Moon turning to blood. Stars you know, diminishing their brightness. All of this is associated with day of the Lord judgments. When the day of the Lord comes, these judgments will come, and it will be a great day of judgment. What happened on the cross when Jesus was crucified from the ninth hour to the twelfth hour, if I remember? It was three hours of what? Darkness. Why was it dark? Right. God was judging the sins of his people upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He turned his face away, right? The face of God is blessing, so the turning of the face away is cursing. 
And darkness comes, that's the day of... Remember, darkness fell, right? The earth trembled. That's signs of judgment, but it's on Christ for our sins. We see this in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. All three accounts have that. And of course, we also see this same type of judgment was cast upon the land of Egypt during the time of Moses, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness in Exodus chapter 10. You don't need to turn there, but I, I will because I, I want to read it. I didn't put it in my notes. Exodus 10, verses 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be even felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So again, this darkness, and again, these trumpets parallel the plagues in Egypt. Darkness. This, connects, this connection between the plagues and the trumpets continues. These are judgments upon the wicked and unbelievers for their rebellion and disobedience toward God. Now again, no one likes the darkness, right? We, you know, people get scared of the dark. You know, people put nightlights in their homes so they don't have to stumble into things. It's symbolic of moral evil. And Jesus Christ, who is the true light of the world, right? He was the light of the world who casts away all the darkness. And again, Philip's commenting on this. Is darkness describes the removal of of God's blessing. So there you go, Joanne. The rule of God's blessing in its context of those living under sin's curse. Now if you think about it, when you go to church and at the end of the service, if you're here and I pronounce the blessing, I usually do the blessing from number six, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he lift up, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace both now and forever. This idea of blessing is God's face shining upon you. God looking at you in grace and mercy. When He turns that away, when He takes that face away, that is cursing. Judgment is the removal of God's face and countenance. The removal of blessing and the bestowal of curses. So I think it should be clear, I hope, that what we see here is divine judgment, not Natural disasters, not just you know, the effects of living in the world. This is divine judgment, again, coming down from heaven upon the earth. However you want to explain away the visionary elements of the trumpets, it is clear that they are direct judgments from God upon the wicked down here on the earth. I think it should also be clear that the most obvious referent to these visions are the plagues in Egypt. Again, not looking you know, in your newspaper, trying to see when these things happen, but looking back in the Old Testament and seeing how God's judgment occurred in the Old Testament. And these are the visions, these are the images that John is drawing from as he gets these visions of God upon you know, showing the judgment that will happen during the day of the Lord. So as God judged Pharaoh and Egypt for their sin and mistreatment of God's people, so too these trumpet judgments are an outpouring of God's wrath against the unbelieving world. Just as God rained the plagues on Egypt as a preparation for leading His people out of Egypt, 
Right? That was the whole point of judging the Egyptians was so that he can rescue his people and take them out. So that the, the, you know, Pharaoh would finally say, okay, that's enough. I'm tired of having judgments rained upon me. My entire kingdom has been destroyed. Now you may go. You know, get, go away before the 11th plague comes. So too, these judgments here that we see in the trumpets is preparatory, if you will, of a new exodus as the people of God are being taken out and being brought into the new heavens and the new earth, which we will see at the end of Revelation. And again, finally, it should also be clear that as devastating as these trumpet judgments are, they were limited in scope. Again, one-third of the lands, the seas, the heavens. These judgments show God's complete sovereign control over all aspects of the created order, land, sea, skies. But worse judgments are yet to come because there's going to be a direct parallel between the trumpets and the bowls. Whereas the trumpets did one-third, the bowls have total destruction, final judgment. Now you'd be thinking, well, we stopped at verse 12. I thought that we were going to go to verse 13. So, Pastor, you left out a verse. Well, no, I didn't. We're going to look at it right now. We're going to look at verse 13 right now because here we see after the fourth trumpet, this little interlude, this little sort of break, if you will, in verse 13. John says, I looked and I heard an angel. So this is not one of the seven. This is a different angel. Flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So if you thought things were bad through the first four trumpets, it's only going to get worse from here on out as the last three trumpets sound. And again, I referred to this earlier, but Joshua, when they, on the seventh day, they sounded the trumpet seven times, and what happened at the end of the seventh trumpet blast? What happened to the walls of Jericho? As the song came, they came a-tumbling down, right? The walls come a-tumbling down. This eagle cries out, woe. Do you know what the word woe means in the Bible? You ever hear the old phrase, woe is me? <laughs> Right? Isaiah says that when he catches the image of God sitting high upon his throne. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the Lord. So he pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is a word of curse. Cursed, cursed, cursed are the inhabitants of the earth. The trumpets here. The, that phrase, inhabitants of the earth, specifies too that the that these trumpets are directed specifically at the wicked, the inhabitants of the earth, because the saints of the, sea, the Lord have already been sealed. They've been sealed for, for heaven. So whatever happens to us on the earth, this judgment is not for us. I mean, we may feel the effects of it. You know, we may be persecuted. We may die as a result of it. But we are sealed. We are protected. And we will, we will be in heaven. And the Lord will come and vindicate us eventually when he comes in judgment fully. Well, that's all I have for tonight. Next time, Lord willing, on the 1st of August, we'll look at, well, I'm not sure if we're going to look at all of Revelation 9, but we'll certainly look at part of Revelation 9. I'm not sure how far we'll get. 